It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Daily Assist brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air. Check them out online, leesheatac.com. Out to the Sprint special guest line we go. They make it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit sprint.com for online services and local store availability. From Sports Illustrated, he's our friend Chris Mannix. Hi, Chris. What's going on, guys? Hey, uh, you know, like the rest of the world, we've been talking a lot about uh, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary after two episodes. Uh, Chris, what did you think? Uh, I thought it was really well done. Um, you know, the the access, of course, was great. It was, you know, thorough with the amount of people that they, they interviewed. Um, you know, I don't really necessarily learned anything new from it, but, you know, they, they began to tell the story of, of a person I think that is you know, really one of the most complex you know, executives in, in basketball history, and that's Jerry Krause. I mean, you know, Jerry Krause was responsible for the demise of the Chicago Bulls in the late 90s, but I don't think you can argue that the Bulls, as they were constituted, wouldn't have existed without Jerry Krause. I mean, you know, from the 87 draft of, of nabbing Pippen and Horace Grant to the trade for Bill Cartwright to acquiring Dennis Rodman. I mean, Jerry Krause was incredibly influential in, um, in that whole process. But you can, you can see one of my big takeaways from watching was just you know, this really was a complex guy with a complex relationship with that team. When you saw the second uh, part of the episodes, uh, talking about Scottie Pippen and him, uh, Reinsdorf, essentially telling him, don't sign this deal. But he, given his situation with his family, Chris, he, he took the security over the, 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 the dollar figure. And and then it didn't work out, really, uh, the way he had hoped it would. If you were Reinsdorf, would you have redone that contract just because you knew you were stealing because he was such a great player? Well, I mean, I, I can certainly see both sides of it. Um, if you're Scottie Pippen, you know, you, in the last couple of years when you are so grossly underpaid, uh, you want more. But if you're Jerry Reinsdorf, I mean, if you overpay a guy and he flops, you don't get out of that contract. You don't get the ability to renegotiate down. So, I can certainly see that. What, what I think would have been an equitable solution for both sides is something we we sometimes see in today's NBA, which is you know a guy signs an extension but does it for you know less than market value. And an example of that um, is Steph Curry when he signed his first extension. Remember, what was Steph for several years was incredibly underpaid compared to to players of his level because he signed, I think it was a, a five-year, $44 million deal or something like that, four-year extension, $44 million, um, because he had ankle issues and he was you know, anxious about uh, the future of his career. So I think you could have found a middle ground perhaps where you get Scotty some more guaranteed money, but you also secure him for the long term at a rate that isn't the maximum possible dollar figure. Chris, I found it really interesting when uh, they were talking – excuse me, about uh, 
the injury that Michael had in his second year and how he wanted to come back and how he negotiated that with the, the franchise because he so desperately wanted to win and make the playoffs. Juxtapose that to the load management era that we're in now. Isn't it interesting how much the culture, I guess, of the NBA has evolved? Yeah, I mean, it, I found it, you know, and I, I had not, I didn't remember any of that from, you know, from covering, not covering, watching Jordan early. Um, I, you know, I find it funny because I can't think of a single player in today's NBA that would, you know, go out on a team that was outside the playoff, look playoffs looking in at that moment and play seven minutes a half. I, I just can't even imagine, you know, that happening. And, and look, maybe, you know, maybe because of the way things have changed, you would have, instead of playing 14 minutes per game, you'd have Jordan play like every other day, every other game, or use rest and load management to, to, to get yourself well. But, I mean, that was kind of wild. Like seven minutes and a half, really? That's, that's, and a guy's going to go out there and be willing to do it. I mean, I think that really was one of the stronger testaments to Jordan's desire to win, just for the shot, the outside shot of making the playoffs. And, you know, the reward, of course, is to go against a juggernaut Boston team and get detonated in the first round. Uh, that really speaks to how badly he, he wanted to win. You know, the irony to that whole thing, Chris, is that he ended up being the ultimate corporation in, in, in himself. And now every NBA player or the, the top stars are corporations unto themselves. And so agents are trying to protect those corporations and, and, mm-hmm. and be careful with their product and all that sort of thing. But Jordan had this this voracious appetite to compete and win, and he ended up being probably the most successful businessman the NBA has ever seen. Yeah, he, he certainly capitalized on, on a lot of his success, and I'm sure that we'll, we'll see more reflections on that as, as this series moves forward. I mean, he had a lot of smart people around him um, that advised him and pushed him in the right direction, but you know, getting involved with Nike, you know, with the Jordan brand, I mean, these things... They just transformed Michael from great player into, you know, unbelievable businessman. And, and those look, he, he, he was a great businessman, but you know, so wasn't Matt Johnson in those days. I mean, there were a handful of guys that, that just got it, that, that figured it out, that they could use their brand and their, uh, and their popularity to, to become uber rich and to, you know, create more wealth outside the court. And, you know, they were really pioneers in that way that, that now, nowadays it's common. Every player is their own brand. But back then, it was it was Michael, then it was Magic, and maybe a handful of other guys. But it, it was nothing nothing like it is today. Chris Mannix with us here on the Big Show on ninety seven five and twelve eighty The Zone. Chris, you were on that conference call with uh, Adam Silver last Friday. What did you think was the biggest story to come out of that conversation? Well, I just felt like the tone was more pessimistic than some of the tone of, that I've heard Silver take in in previous interviews. Now he's always been very guarded about the the possibility of playing again this season. But it was interesting to hear him say, like, you know, I know I said May 1st is, you know, uh, it sounded like I said May 1st was a day we could make some decisions, but there's a good chance that we won't be able to make decisions that first week in May. And, look, every day that passes, every week that passes, where, you know, this country doesn't have uh, a grip on on the coronavirus is just, you know, one more nail in, in the NBA's proverbial coffin. I mean, that, that, that they can't bring, bring that this season back because, you know, Silver laid it out pretty clear what needs to happen for, for the NBA to resume, and that's, you know, widespread testing, uh, a turning of the corner nationally, um, and none of those things exist right now. So, look, we can all be hopeful that, you know, the federal government will get its act together and, 
and and things will change, you know, more significantly in the next month, and maybe it will. But you know, I, I, I came away from that call not feeling optimistic at all about the NBA's chances of of resuming a season. I mean, they're they're, they're still at the point where they're not really seriously entertaining. Um, the idea of, of playing in a bubble or playing in Las Vegas or, or things like that—they're they're getting pitched all the time, uh, but but because of the circumstances, they're just not able to do it. So I, I, I grow more pessimistic with with the with everybody else that, that this season is going to start. You know, Chris, uh, I'm sports in the worst way. I know you do. Jake does. We all do. People out there want to get back to work. They want to do what they typically do. But of all the things that you've said, the, the sentence that you uttered that just stays with me, and I think about it a lot, is when you said, my mom and dad are not expendable. And that, that, that sentence stays with me, even, even with all this eagerness to get back to normalcy, whatever that is. But I can't get away from that sentence. Yeah, I mean... Look, to, to be honest, like I'm not anticipating having any kind of physical contact with my parents for the rest of this calendar year. Like, really, I, I don't, I don't think it's the right thing to do. I, I don't. I think that no matter, we just don't have enough information about you know this, you know this virus, how it's transmitted, you know, asymptomatic people and how they transmit. I mean, there's just there's just not enough information out there. So. You know, fortunately, we live in an era where technology is what it is, and and FaceTime is great, and and all the ways we can communicate. But I just think it's crazy if you have parents that are, you know, in their seventies or eighties, uh, grandparents. Like I just I don't see the upside in in coming into physical contact with them until there's been some kind of medical breakthrough. Because I mean, look, it it sucks that you can't do certain things, but you know, you'd feel a million times worse if you contributed to to the demise of somebody, be it your family member or somebody else's. So, you know, this is brutal, like dealing with it every day. And, and look, I'm in the media business and, you know, I work at Sports Illustrated and people have seen SI in the news a lot because of, you know, some of the, the, the staffing issues that they've had there. But either way, it's better than, than being dead or killing somebody. And I still think we're at that point where, where that's a serious concern. So you you mentioned uh, the the tone of Adam Silver and his um, you know hesitancy to to set any deadlines. He also talked about how revenue is down to zero. So was there, I, I guess, was there a desperation in his vibe, or does he think the the NBA you know will weather this? Well, they'll obviously weather this regardless. But did it seem like he was there was a panic there? I mean, I don't know if panic is the right word. You know, maybe resignation could be could be a better word attributed to it i mean he's he's dealing with his realities i mean and he knows that you know this this could potentially impact next season as well i mean if, if this virus comes back and 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 there seems to be strong indications that it, it will become seasonal it's going to make you know traveling from city to city to hold games you know extremely difficult and you know look we all kind of laughed at the idea of baseball quarantining in arizona and, and conducting its season there I don't know how baseball comes back at all in the next few months. I don't know how you travel with with teams. And, and testing would have to be, make some exponential leaps in the next couple of months for baseball to even be viable. So I think that you know not only is is are people in the league office, Adam Silver included, I, I think slowly coming to a realization that this may be impossible. But there's genuine fear that you know into next year, a best case scenario might be playing games in empty venues. That might be the best case scenario at this point because nobody that that I've talked to is is all that uh, enthusiastic or optimistic that 
crowds will be back in stand and in, in the stands at any point in this calendar year. Chris, I've continued to write, and obviously Jake and I are doing the show. What is your life like now with these new uh, restrictions or, and directives? Well, my my uh, my house here in Boston has turned into like two separate video studios. One that <laughs> that Sports Illustrated set up, and one that DAZN, who I work for for boxing, has has built for me as well. So there's still you know content being produced out of my kitchen, basically. And, and look, there's still some stuff to write about. I mean, I've, I've got a piece tomorrow, and I spent some time talking to Vince Carter last week, and you know, I've got a piece on him coming out tomorrow. And there's, there's stuff still in the pipeline that you can do. But at some point, you know, there's only so many stories on how guys are staying in shape and, and what the next step is. You need games to come back. You need transactions to come back. You need you know, free agency, the draft, everything to start kind of you know, going into motion. So it's it's certainly tough, but you know, I mean, I look, I, I'm I live alone, so you know, this isn't a whole lot different socially for me at this point. I'm not uh, quarantined with a bunch of kids, but uh, it it certainly is has has changed things significantly. Could you foresee the NBA draft being something similar to what the NFL is going to do this week? Well, I know they're going to watch it. Um, I, I did think that the WNBA draft was kind of clumsy. I, I didn't I didn't love that that whole concept there. I mean, it's look at some point it is what it is, but you know, I think for a more high profile draft like the NBA, you've got to be flawless with your execution. So I think the league is, and I know the league is going to watch what the NFL is doing very closely and to see if they pull it off, what the viewership numbers are like, um, how it all works. I mean, I just don't look, you're just not going to be able to, you know, have a conventional draft this year. It's just not going to be possible, whether it's in June, July, August, whenever. So I do think they'll watch that NFL draft closely. And if it works out well, uh, don't be surprised if the NBA just, you know, copies it and does its own version at some point in the summer. Chris Mannix with us on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Not to uh, come back around to the Michael Jordan documentary, Chris, but there was mm. kind of a, a fun Boston-related nugget in there that people uh, kind of latched onto here as well because of the BYU-Danny Ainge connection. But how about he and MJ playing a round of golf between games one and two of a playoff series and Ainge taking money from Michael? I Honestly, when I, I was going to call Danny about that and, and write some, but then I saw Adam Himmelsbach of the Boston Globe did the exact same thing. And like, I, I can't even fathom that. I really can't. Like, I know guys, you know, during the regular season will meet up, um, but it doesn't happen in the playoffs. Even in today's, you know, kind of, you know, everybody's a former AAU teammate of somebody landscape, and they're all been friends for such a long time. Uh, I was really shocked by that. Throwing the fact that you're talking about two of the most competitive people that, that I've known or I've covered, you know, in Jordan, who's ultra competitive, and Danny, who you guys know, is just you know, a, a lunatic competitive sometimes when it comes to stuff. So that they would be out there, you know, playing golf the day before uh, game two of a, a first-round series, I mean, that, that was really a remarkable anecdote that, that they threw in there. And I just love that, you know, Jordan, after getting his butt kicked on the golf course, decides to retaliate by saying he's going to go after Dennis Johnson uh, in the game, in the subsequent game. I mean, that was just... That was classic. That's what makes these docs. I mean, even if you are familiar with these stories, and and many people listening, you know, I'm sure are, because Jordan was such a big deal in the 1990s. I mean, this is stuff that that you just you just can't find anywhere else. I, I think it was just incredibly well done. 49 points, and then he says, "Tell DJ I got yeah. some form to." <laughs> 63. Sure, wondering, like, what else? Like, what else do you have for me? Like, 49. Damn. The other thing that really stood out to me, and I mentioned this to Jake earlier, was Larry Bird not exactly known for 
pouring compliments in every direction, uh, and yet for him to say that 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 wasn't Michael Jordan out there, that was God disguised as Michael Jordan, I, I thought that was a classic line from Larry. Yeah, I mean, usually Larry's comments, you know, from you know from reading them in the past and even now, um, they're they're fairly watered down or they're they're put in a context like one of the greats of all time or you know nothing. Nothing so explicit that it stands out in a headline, but it, it's like that that old phrase: "Game recognizes game." And you know, Larry Magic, you know, controlled the first half of the 1980s, and you know, both those guys knew the second they stepped on the floor with Michael Jordan that you know this kid had game, and you know, they they, they were keenly aware you know, in ways that none of us could be aware of what was coming. You know, just because that's that sort of you know just completely relentless mentality and that that skill set that dwarfs all others that exists in the bodies of bird magic. So when they see it, they recognize it. And you could tell, you know, from Larry's comments, the level of respect he had for Michael. Well, Chris, thank you as always for jumping on with us. We always look forward to it. You got it guys. Thanks, Chris. Chris Mannix from sports illustrated with us here on 97.5 and 1280 the zone. Gordon, uh, how much are you, uh, what's your, what's your highest losses on the golf course? Highest losses. Yeah, how many? How many gur have you dropped on the golf course? Well, I don't gamble really on the golf course. Um, look, it's bad enough when I'm playing. Okay, you're on the 18th green, right? Uh-huh. And you're tied with your buddy, and you're playing for a freaking hamburger, you know. And then all of a sudden, you get the yips and you miss the putt. That's bad enough. If I threw a couple k. On a round of golf, I might hit the, I might putt the ball right off the green. Hmm. I don't know, I don't know how I would do it with that kind of pressure. Because hmm. I just assumed the the circles you roll in, that you guys were, you know, five ten grand a hole. No, no, not not me. I uh, I barely even keep score anymore. Oh, but, okay. Uh, but I do, I do enjoy it, and I, I do need to get out on the golf course one of these times. But uh, you've you've gone out there. I played yesterday. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. I played four still, quick nine. How'd it was great. How did you hit them? Oh, terribly. But I, I I didn't care at all. Didn't care one bit. Didn't keep score. <laughs> I was outside. It was beautiful. I mean, it even rained a little bit. Didn't care. Didn't care one bit. So mm. nice. That's and, one thing about this whole situation is I think that. I think sometimes the loss of something makes you appreciate it more. And just being outside, looking up at the blue sky and being able to walk across the grass, it's amazing uh, how your perspective changes. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it didn't matter. I could have gotten a snowman on every hole. I would have gone home a happy man. <laughs> more Big Show next, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.